As I started thinking, well, weeks gone by, I suppose, once I knew that I was speaking here this evening and trying to get a thought. I often work on the basis of getting a thought, where is God leading me in this? And I guess there's sort of lots of thought process goes on where I believe God's speaking to me, not just when I sort of sit down and put everything down on paper, but, you know, when I'm outside mowing the lawn or weeding the garden or something like that. Uh, jobs that don't take too much mental power. Uh, I guess I'm sometimes aware of God speaking then. But this one was a bit different because I had this theme as I prayed about it of God saying the theme you want to speak is help those in need. And I've got a couple of personal illustrations which I thought, great, I can share that. Uh, But I just couldn't seem to get any further than that. Now, probably anyone who instructs you on instructing sermons, that's probably not really the way to start on anything. But, you know, I tried to think of something else and yet this thing wouldn't go away. Uh, And I was struggling, as I say, to put any meat on the bare bones of that thought. And originally my thoughts went firstly to an old hymn, one fits in very much with what Alan was sharing with us about the holiness of God, the old hymn which says, Take time to be holy, speak off with thy Lord, abide in him always and feed on his word, make friends of God's children. And I guess this was the line, help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. Eventually I came to this passage in Romans and so I hope tonight that I can share some thoughts that are not just a moral message but are words from God. So what does it mean about helping others? You've probably heard the quote said that some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly use. Now I have to confess it's not a saying that I subscribe to as I believe most people that are truly spiritual will make a difference wherever they go in life. I read a quote by an American minister, John Piper. He said this, Yes, I know it is possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is this, I've never met one of these people. And I suspect if I met one, The problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. Yes, helping others in need isn't something that we can be too heavenly minded, too away and seemingly so spiritual that we don't translate down to people we come round with. And yet that's the basis we start. You know, maybe the challenge for all of us today in today's language, if you want to put it that way, is are we able not just to talk the talk, but also to walk the walk? But as that hymn points out, I quoted, Everything starts from the basis of our relationship with the Lord. Taking time to be holy. We have a holy God. As we we sung, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That's who he is. 
And we're instructed in, in another hymn to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so whatever we do starts from that basis, that we spend time with God, not just the leftovers of busy days, but quality time, listening to him, letting him shape our lives, letting him keep our motives pure, so that we will be holy and blessed by him to serve those that we meet in so many different situations. So that passage that I read has, has a number of very little statements, some of which don't really need a great deal of explanation. You know, this is not going to be a long message tonight. It subscribes to the old instruction of stand up, speak up and shut up. And that's the way I want to do tonight, because I feel once I've got to the end of the message, there's no, more, no point in me going on. In verse 9 that I read, it says this, Love must be sincere. How sincere are we? You know, you've all, probably all met salespeople when you've been looking around at goods. And at first, when they see you looking at their goods, you are the best thing since sliced bread. However, when you don't want to buy, they have a complete character change. How sincere is that? Not. We should be sincere. Our love must be sincere. Even with those that are not quite as lovable as some of the others are that we come into contact with. Love must be sincere. In fact it says be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Devoted to each other. Not just loving them when they're at their best and forgetting that when they're at the worst but being devoted to them. Honour one another above yourselves. Writing in Philippians, Paul can say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That's hard sometimes, isn't it, to think of others better than ourselves? And yet if we can't do that, then we're never really going to be able to help and serve others in the way God intends. You see, that's not the world's standard. That's not the way the world works. We honour one another with love, and that comes about from humility. It's not a word that the world understands. You know, you can go on any number of courses teaching you how to be more assertive, but you don't go on many that teach you to be humble. The world tells us regularly to look after number one. You know, I'll agree with that. Look after number one, as long as your number one is the Lord. And that's not where the world goes. We need to look after our relationship with God so that we can love one another.
Verse 9 also goes on to tell us, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I wonder if we do hate much of the evil that goes on in the world. Have we got immune to some of the things that we hear on our news? Things like the conflict in Yemen and elsewhere that have been going on for years and years and somehow, oh yeah, it's on there again. You know, we may get bored a bit with all the talk about Brexit. And maybe we have, but, you know, what's happening in Yemen is affecting real people's lives. Have we got immune to all the stabbings that are going on in London and elsewhere? And of course, even Norwich has not been immune to that. We need to think on those situations to show God's love. Because if we're not concerned at what's going on if we're not hating that evil into what we say and clinging to what is good then we've somehow compromised what we stand for we've become immune you know immunization is a process that gives you just enough of a disease to prevent you getting the real whole thing have we sort of got that that that's gone in has sort of prevented us really getting a real concern for those in need? Whatever we need is to take notice of verse 11, which says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. God calls us to serve him enthusiastically. Not just when we feel like it. Not when we've just got nothing better to do. It calls us to be fervent and enthusiastic as we serve him. You know, if we have a problem with that, perhaps we need to pray and ask God to help us. Perhaps you need to take the words of the prayer that David uttered in Psalm 51 after the prophet Nathan had fronted him with his adultery and murder of uh, Uriah and his wife. David could say this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And maybe you need that this evening. Maybe the Christian life has gone a bit hard. You don't know how to get on with things. You're getting fed up with the things you're hearing in this world. And your love for God is, is somehow on the way Take that prayer of David, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 12 goes on to say, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. As I said before, many of these phrases don't really need much further explanation. We have a hope. Not a hope in the sense of how the word, world uses the word when I hope it won't rain tomorrow. I hope I get you get on the right at the doctors or whatever it is, however sincere. But we have a hope that is steadfast and sure. We have a hope that is certain. 
that Jesus died for us. And because of that, if we've trusted him, we will go to be with him for eternity. Patient in affliction. Some of us are more patient than others. Sometimes I'm patient, sometimes I'm not. That's probably like most of you, depends what it is. And sometimes God does put us down with an affliction and we've got to be patient and let's just see what he's trying to teach us through that. We need to be faithful in prayer. You know, we don't always get immediate answers. A former minister at my church had been praying for his mother to become a Christian for 18 years. And finally, at the end of those 18 years, she did. But how easy would it have been to give up? No, there's no hope in this. God is faithful. Are we going to be faithful in prayer? There goes on to be a few verses about how we should treat, well, what's described as our enemies, for want of a better word. Most of us would probably say, I don't have any enemies. However, I guess in some parts of the world where Christians aren't able to worship as freely as we can, then there are people who have styled themselves as enemies of the church, enemies of Christians, enemies of believers. <coughs> and what does God tell us for those people? God says, bless them, to bless them and not curse them. Not to repay evil for evil, not to take revenge, but to leave that to God. You know, that was a complete turnaround from what the Old Testament so often taught when the Israelites were moving towards the Promised Land and sometimes they spared some of the inhabitants and they incurred God's wrath because they hadn't completely destroyed them. And yet here is God's message, do not repay evil for evil or take revenge but leave that to God rather if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him some of the drink um, and then, then this line which puzzled me for a minute in doing this you will be heaping burning coals on his head what does that mean perhaps it's a difficult concept to get your head around I guess it's the idea that if an enemy is before you and he's in need, he would think that you have him at your mercy. You can do what you like. You've got the opportunity there to gain revenge. That is what he is expecting. And yet by helping him, you're burning away at all that motivates him to be your enemy. You're asking him to think, what is it that's causing him to take that stance? Of course, helping others is not just about our enemies. Verse 13 tells us, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. You know, many, I know that many of you 
are very good at doing that, but that doesn't mean it's not something we don't need to be reminded of. Bless those, help those in need, practice hospitality, share with them, do what you can for them. Don't forget to do it. Don't get weary in well-doing. Rather, verses 15 and 16 say, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do you ever get to the place where you think that we still live in that class system? And, you know, I'm this class and I'm not going to touch that class. And God says to you, don't be conceited. I call you to help everyone. But you see, the biblical concept of helping others doesn't apply just to those in our immediate circle of friends. It applies to all we come into contact with, even those that maybe we wish we hadn't. As I draw towards the end of this message, I want to share a few illustrations of what I've read and what I've experienced that might point us <coughs> to how we can help. So, verse 15, in a way, talks about having an empathy with people. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Help them. Be with them in their situation. I may have seen this use this illustration before but I think it bears repeating there's a cartoon of a woman who's lying in bed with flu and a lady goes to visit her she walks in the door and sees this lady in bed with the flu in the kitchen sink there is a pile of dishes right up as high as it could possibly go over elsewhere, there's a pile of washing that's been done but needs ironing. There's a baby crying in one corner. And there are two rather dirty children having a fight in the other corner. And the lady who's come visiting said, you know, if there's anything I can do to help, you've only got to ask. You know, sometimes... God has created us with common sense. I mean, it doesn't always show in everybody, but he has. And we shouldn't need to ask, what can I do to help? It should be so obvious. I know we don't want to intrude, but, you know, a lady lying there with flu is clearly not going to be able to tackle any of those situations in the immediate future. We need to look to those we can help, and sometimes that may be obvious. You know, sometimes we need to put ourselves in that woman's shoes. If you were in, ill in bed and you'd got all this commotion going on around you, what would you want? You wouldn't want someone asking for directions. You'd say, oh, for goodness sake, get on with it. We need to try and help. Sometimes, of course, we may help in ways we don't think. Maybe sometimes we just need to be a listening ear. 
I've probably told you that normally on a Monday morning I work in the church office in Loddon. I've done that most of the time since I've uh, been there. And she's not there now, but in the early part of that time, the cleaner would normally be in cleaning the church on a Monday morning while I was there. Uh, And that's a building that's also let out to some other organisations as well. And sometimes this cleaner would come in and she would go in the toilets and perhaps find them, shall we say, in a condition we would not like to find them ourselves. A number of times she'd come down in the office and she would tell me at great length, this has gone wrong, this is, and this is the state they're in. And so about halfway through she'd say, I know it's not your fault, uh, but, and she'd carry on. And after about a minute or two, she'd have run out of breath and she'd go out the door and say, Thank you for listening to me. You know, I hadn't done anything to help in, the, in a practical sense. I mean, she was quite a good cleaner. I, I, I could never clean to the standard she did. Um, but I'd been there just to listen. You know, it cost me two minutes of my time. Well, it hadn't really cost me two minutes of my time because I was I'm due to be down in the church for three hours anyway. It took time to listen. You know, the old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. Do we take time just to listen to people? Are we interested in them enough? had an illustration just this morning. I was on the door out there and my family came in. I just said, hello, how are you? And sort of stayed with her. And she said, you know, you're the first person this morning who said, how are you? And has actually maintained facial contact with me. Most people just ask the question and walk past. Are we interested? Are we prepared to listen to people? Sometimes the way we can help may not make much sense. One of the, I, I used to work in a bank many years ago. One of the branches I worked at, it was actually in Sudbury where I lived before I moved to Norfolk, and um, where, where we parked our cars was in the garden There's a really huge garden right at the back of the the bank. Uh, It used to belong to, in the old days, when the manager lived in the flat above, it was his garden. Huge bit of grass and space around the outside and a few borders. Uh, But you couldn't sort of go out the back door of the building to get there. You had to go out the front door, up the street, down between a couple of shops, around the dark, well, dark in wintertime, and then along an inner gate around there. And I guess, you know, if it was the sort of place that people wanted to hang out and attack someone, well, it was probably prime uh, place to do it. Now, I don't know that that particularly happened uh, in Sudbury at any time, let alone between five and six o'clock at night when we were going home. But there's one lady in my section who would say, oh, are you walking around to the car now? Can I come with you? And... You may think, well, that, yeah, that's, that's very sensible. Why am I saying that, you know, it's not making sense? Well, I've left out one vital component of this story. You see, that lady in question was a black belt at karate. And you probably think, like I do, if she couldn't take care of herself, what on earth did she think I was going to do? <laughs> I mean, I got to think later on that perhaps if anyone did attack her, I was probably there to 
protect the attacker from the obvious <laughs> revenge that she was capable of pouring back on her. But it didn't make sense. And you know, sometimes we can ask to do things that don't make sense. And yet we have to trust God if we want to serve him. Lord, I don't know, this don't make sense. I don't know I can do anything to help in this situation, but being there with this lady did help her. However illogical it was. Are we prepared to do not just what makes sense to us, but to help people with what they need? We're called to work out our faith in helping and serving others. Not just those we like, but sometimes those that are difficult. Not just our friends, but everyone we come into contact with. Even our enemies. And you know, sometimes that can be very difficult. You know, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. You know, sometimes that may involve showing some amazing forgiveness. And yet that's what God calls us to do. And that's what he will help us to do. I want to finish with an amazing story that comes out from South Africa just after the end of the apartheid time. You may have heard this before, it has been around, but I always think it bears massive repeating. After the end of apartheid, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up. And the scene of this um, story is a recent courtroom trial in South Africa. A frail black woman rises slowly to her feet. She is something over 70 years of age. Facing across the room there are several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr van der Broek, has just been tried and found implicated in the murders of both the woman's son and her husband some years before. He had come to the woman's home, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then set the young man's body on fire while he and his officers partied nearby. Several years later, van der Broek and his cohorts had returned to take away her husband as well. For many months she heard nothing of his whereabouts, then, almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Vanderbrook came back to fetch the woman herself. How vividly she remembers that evening, going to a place beside a river, where she was shown her husband, bound and beaten, but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as officers poured gasoline over his body and set him aflame, were, Father, forgive them. Now the woman stands in the courtrooms and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbrook. A member of the South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, so what do you want? To, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman, calmly, but confidently. 
I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses, then continues. My husband and my son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbrook to become my son. I would like him, for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. This is also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbrook in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistant come to lead the elderly woman across, Mr. Vanderbrook, overwhelmed by what he has just heard, faints. As he does, those in the courtroom, family, friends, neighbours, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. You know, we may not have to show forgiveness to the extent that that woman did. And yet in a way, that's the extent of the forgiveness that God showed to us. We were enemies of God because we'd broken his laws. But God didn't condemn us. Rather, he sent his only son. And he put him to death for our sins so that we might know forgiveness, freedom and assurance to go on to serve him and of course one day go to be with him. May we this evening acknowledge the God we have, the God who loves us and may we trust him to help us to serve others, to bring others to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until the day he returns and takes us to be with him. Amen.